witness for us. Give us ears to hear what you're saying to the church in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Man, worship. Come on. How about that? Wow. Wow. Uh, it is so good to be with you. It's your very first Sunday. Again, just a special welcome to you. We'd love to meet you uh, in the front lobby, maybe after this service. We'd love to grab a, coffee, a cup of coffee on us, or even if it's just a quick hello. Just want to hear more about your story and what brings you through the doors. Did we, did we enjoy uh, not just the message? The message was great, but snow, guys. Yeah. Need some snow? Snow was fun. I, uh, I, until I ruined it. Uh, yeah, I, we're, my, my daughter's five years old, so snow is like the most wondrous thing in the world. And so I'm like, baby, let's learn. Let's, I'm gonna teach you how to make snowballs and snowmen. And she's like, yeah, this is gonna be awesome. So we're all hyped up and we're doing it. So we're throwing snowballs, everything's fantastic. And um, she wants me to throw them high in the air and all this kind of stuff. So I'm juggling them. It's just wonder until, until uh, I turn around and I just kind of do one of those like Kobe fadeaways and just throw it. And way out, like she, she's off to the right, I throw it off to the left, but like the sovereignty of God just brought those two things together. <laughs> and just, and, and like mom was right there, so I couldn't even lie about it, like what happened? And it just goes, and she's shocked. She looks at Nicole and she just starts melting down. And I was like, now I, I hate that, but also you haven't had a real snow day until somebody's red in the face, not coming down the nose, calling for their mom. Like that's how you know a snow day happened. So, but besides that, it was awesome, it was great. Uh, as Greg's already shared it and Tom um, kicked us off last week, we take two weeks in January to talk about this keystone value around service. And I wanna continue uh, that conversation. Uh, it's interesting for me, we're, we're in a phase right now in the year where we've, we definitely still have our New Year's resolutions, um, but it's January 23rd. And the goals that we set are getting harder. <laughs> And the, the resolutions, of, I'm gonna read all these books and I'm gonna work out and I'm gonna do this diet and all these different resolutions that, that we set for ourselves. And the studies and science says it's right about now that the wheels will fall off. And uh, so I don't know how you are, if you're a type A personality like me, I love to achieve, I wanna set goals, I wanna set resolutions, whether it's my spiritual walk or my marriage or my relationship with my daughter or friends or our finances or education, career, health, whatever your resolution is. Um, I just know that we start to, things start to fall apart. And here's my situation, I've got a bit of a problem. If you don't relate to this, then if I can't air out my dirty laundry here, where else will I do it, you know what I mean? And so. I always, I, I set, I've set in the last several years like a resolution around health of some kind, like a diet or an exercise. I'm, I'm going like mid thirties now, starting to taste mortality. At 20, it was like, you really didn't have to worry about a diet. Like you could just essentially, like I, if I'm walking by and there's like a corn dog in the trash and if it's sitting on the papers, just fine. Like you just, you pop that thing out, you just clean it and your body's just like, oh, lunch, it's not a big, and you just like, there's no regrets because your body can take it. Uh, I'm paying my own health insurance now and I've got my daughter to think about and so I can't just pull that kind of stuff anymore. So I set resolutions around health. Here's my issue, here's my problem. While I set a resolution around health, my wife also has resolutions and goals. And Nicole's resolutions and goals consist around baking. Uh, Christmas, you know what I'm talking, November, December in the Handel House, it's like smells like chocolate chip cookies all the time. Like we're off work, so she's binge watching British Bake Off shows and all this kind of stuff. And, and then my mom encourages it because she's a baker too. So she'll get like Nicole, like blenders and different stuff that you need for baking. So she's just like on fire through January. So, so she's making scones and I'm trying to go for a run. And so I, I get a scone before I go for a run because you got a carbo load. Uh, and then I come home and there's like four pies on the counter. So I eat a pie because you got to recover. It's an athlete's thing. You wouldn't understand. It's fine. 
So I get to about this week and I'm like looking at the scales and I, not only have I not lost weight, I've gained five pounds. And I'm like, I don't understand. I want to change. I don't understand what's happening. Has this happened to you or is this just me? Is this just, okay, it's just me. It's fine. It's fine. You, you know, the Bible says a lot about liars, people. Uh, no, you shouldn't do it. No. What is that thing? That thing where we say we, we long for change. We desire to do uh, something new. We want to change. And yet at the same time, there's opposing forces and we give in to the very thing that we're saying we're not trying to do. I like how, I like how Paul says it in Romans chapter seven, verse 15. Clearly he had bakers in his church. He says this, for I do not understand my own actions. I run five miles and I come back and eat a pie. I don't understand why I do the things that I do. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in the flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do uh, the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I want and I do, or if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. I found this to be the case that uh, we don't rise to our strongest ambitions, but rather we, we fall to our deepest cravings. We don't rise to our strongest ambitions, the strongest desires for change, but rather we're constantly falling into our deepest cravings. If you're uh, like me, I also have reading resolutions. I, I, I read this book now twice. It's a great book, I'd recommend it. It's called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Does a phenomenal job talking about our behavior, talking about why we do the things that we don't wanna do. But he talks about how we set up good habits and how we break the bad habits in our life and how we create lasting change. And really one of the premises that he, that he speaks about is the reality that it's a misguided belief that we think that in order to change, in order to have lasting change, that we need to willpower our way up or motivate ourselves to good work, white knuckle. If I just try harder, then I'm going to uh, save the amount of money I wanted to save in 2022. My marriage is gonna be in a different place, my kids' relationship. If I, just, if I just do enough work, if I just lift this thing up by myself, if I can just motivate myself to stay on task, then I can see change. And he says, it's actually a misguided belief that your motivation and your willpower is gonna be enough to create lasting change. In fact, he says, it's actually science that is showing that it's actually not in your willpower. Your willpower, uh, the problem with your willpower is you don't always feel motivated. You notice that 20, January 23rd, that January one motivation is like all but spent. We don't always, so he goes, if you're trying to change and it's resting on your motivation and your willpower and what you can accomplish, eventually that will fade away because you're not always motivated to do the right thing. And so he says, there's actually something more powerful than willpower and motivation. And he says, it's actually all centered around your identity. He says that, that actually your belief is far more powerful than your willpower. That your belief is the thing that shapes and forms your identity. What you believe about yourself determines the kind of actions that you take. And the reason it can eliminate willpower is that when you believe something, you're far more likely to do different things based on that. If I could say it this way, there's a couple of examples that he gives that's really helpful. He says, suppose, suppose you wanna set a resolution to read more books this year. 
He says, if your goal is to read more this year, don't set a goal that sounds really good that you can post on Instagram and, and rings, but it's all about your doing and your motivation. So for example, I'm gonna read 22 books in 2022. It sounds great. You can make a caption out of it. You can post it up. Who's gonna join me? It's like a whole thing. <laughs> Nobody's gonna join you. Yeah. It, but he says, rather, rather than doing that, don't set up a goal that's all about your doing, rather set up a goal that's in your identity. So he says, if you wanna read more books, don't say I'm gonna read 22 books in 2022, but rather say, I'm going to become an avid reader in 2022. Because it lends itself then to different kinds of questions. The first obvious question would be, okay, well, what does an avid reader do? And this, this is what's fascinating to me. This is why I, I find the book fascinating. He says that when you answer the question, what does an avid reader do? Let's say, well, an avid reader would read every day, right? He goes, well, how much should you read? Should you read for an hour? Maybe, 30 minutes, maybe, five minutes, a single page. Technically, if you read a single page every day, you, you've read every day and that's what an avid reader does. He says, this is what's fascinating. The, the psychology around it goes is that your brain is constantly looking for evidence, looking for a vote that says, this is who I am. And it, it goes back to your actions in the past and it says, oh, this is who I am because this is what I've done. I'm an avid reader because I read every day. And even if you start with something small, like a page a day, eventually your brain continues to stack up and build evidence that that is who you are. And it works in the, in the opposite if you're trying to break a habit. He, said, he says this, for people who are trying to quit smoking, he said that they had two kind of test study in groups. One group, uh, when they were offered a cigarette, they would answer one way, the second group would answer a different way. The first group would say, when they were offered a cigarette, hey, do you wanna, do you wanna smoke? They would say, no, I'm trying to quit. So it's a, I'm, I'm trying to motivate myself to not do that anymore. He said, far more powerful were the people who responded, oh no, I'm not a smoker. One is saying, that's my past life. That's not who I am anymore. The point of the book and the point that I wanna make is this, is that we crave who we are. The things that you deep down crave, that is a reflection of who you are deep down inside. And this, this is exactly what Paul was writing when he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians. We're gonna kind of do an overview of the, of the letter as a whole. But this was Paul's heart when he wrote to this church called the Church of Corinth. His whole, his whole part and premise of this was that he wanted to, uh, for them to recognize not the things that they were doing, which were wrong, but rather who they had been called in Christ. We, we talk about this often here at Northlands. We talk about law and grace. That Moses, he was, he was the one who led the people out of Israel and he was given the law, the 10 commandments and 600 other plus laws about what it meant to be holy. And he said his, his whole prompting, he would give the law to the people. And he said, now do it, just do it. Motivate you, you know what's good and right. This, if you do what is good and right, things will go well with you. If you do not follow the law, things will go bad with you. It's as easy as that. How many of us know that the law though is like a mirror? Everybody, the mirror can be viciously accurate sometimes, can it? Viciously accurate. The, the thing with about a mirror, though, it's, it's, it's giving you a true account of your state of being. It is an unbiased party. It's not trying to puff you up in your vanity and it's not trying to give you a bad day. It's simply reflecting back to you your state of being. So if I've got spinach in my teeth, if I've got a smudge on my face, the mirror can show me exactly what is right with me and exactly what is wrong with me. Here's the problem with mirrors. It has no ability to actually wipe the smudge off your face, right? 
And the Bible says that the law, it was powerless to do this. It could tell you exactly what the right thing is to do, but it had no ability to actually change you. No matter how much you desired it, you could not change. Why? Because we were dead in our sin and trespasses. We were being led through a sinful nature and sinful people crave sinful desires. But this is the good news of grace. That grace is, the, is all about your new identity that those who are in Christ are no longer the old, but the new has come. They are a new creation. The old passed away, the new has come. And with the new, you've been given new desires. Galatians says that those who are in step with the Holy Spirit, those who are in Christ, those who are in step with the Holy Spirit of God will not give into the cravings of their flesh. Why? Because they have a new craving. And so Paul, he, he writes to the Corinthian church and he, is, he has got such a father heart for this people that he has built communion. And his entire letter is holding up a new mirror, a mirror of grace. He is constantly going, I've got to write to you about some of the things that you're doing. It's out of line. He rebukes it. He calls sin, sin. He doesn't, he doesn't negate it. He doesn't say that it's okay. He says that is wrong and you must stop doing it. But his heart is for real and lasting change. And so the entire letter, as he talks about the sin that is happening in the Corinth church, he's also holding up the mirror. But don't you know you are in Christ? Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God, that you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, you are a new creation, and therefore you do not have old cravings from an old and sinful flesh? That's powerful. And so I just wanna give us an overview of, of, if you're not familiar with the letter of 1 Corinthians, I wanna just give us a quick overview. And then I wanna spend some time talking about service and talking about the, the letter of 1 Corinthians a bit. So, so here's an overview uh, of 1 Corinthians, if you're not familiar. So Paul, in Acts, two, uh, Acts chapter 18, uh, Paul writes about his journey into the city of Corinth. And so he goes in and he meets uh, friends of his that become business partners, Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team. They are tent makers and so is Paul. And so his Monday to Friday, he, he kind of funds his time in the city by making tents with Priscilla and Aquila. And on Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue and he preaches the gospel. And while he's preaching the gospel, more crowds come, more community is built and he, he creates a friendship circle a community of people. We're getting ready to launch community groups. There's a plug right there. You need to have community. Paul builds community in Corinth. And while he's preaching the gospel, they begin to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that community becomes what we know as a church. And so Paul leaves the city of Corinth. He goes to plant more churches after a year and a half of spending time in this community. And while he is busy planting more churches, he hears back from Chloe and Chloe's people about the report, some of his friends there, about the report in the state of the church, and the state of the church is not good. They're like, guys, there are problems all over the place, all over the place, and Paul, we need you to either come back or write a letter, tell us what we need to do, because it is, it is running rampant, and we are afraid that the church is about to split apart and faction off into 100 different directions. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians, what we know as 1 Corinthians. And this is how, how the book is set up. Essentially, it's five separate essays uh, addressing the five different problems that were reported uh, to Paul. So, so Paul goes, hey, I need to write you about the divisions that I'm hearing about. These are temporary issues that you are letting divide the church at hand. Then he talks about the problem of sexual immorality. The city of Corinth was filled with this, but it had seeped in so deeply that he's like, you guys are, you guys are even worse than the pagans. And then you think that sexuality or sexual immorality is okay 
okay because you're under grace. And he goes, certainly not. That, that grace didn't give you a freedom for autonomy to do whatever you want, but rather it gives you a freedom to be set free from something, not set free to do stuff. And so he talks about that. Then he goes into a third essay where he talks about food and idol worship and, and, and some of the issues that were going on there about are we allowed to eat food that's sacrificed to idols? Is this, being defile, is this defiling ourselves? So he writes about that in chapters eight to 10. Then in chapters 11 to 14, he talks about the gathering. He talks about what we're doing right now. I love the fact that what we're doing right now was happening back then. We've been doing this for a long time, folks, and it ain't going anywhere. So he talks about the gathering because there's, there, it's, he says it's doing more harm than good. You guys are out of whack. All the things that you've been doing that he writes about, division and sexual immorality, gossip and backbiting. He goes, and then you come together. That's just stirring the pot. And he goes, so it's causing more harm than good. We gotta talk about what the gathering was meant for. And then finally, things have gotten so bad that the last essay he writes is chapter 15. And he writes about the fact that people are denying and doubting that the resurrection ever happened. I find it fascinating that Paul and Peter were some of the men that spoke into the life of this church. Guys who had been with Jesus and had encounters with Jesus. And they're like, I'm not really sure that that's true. Eyewitness, it's fascinating. Chapter 16 is just a farewell wrapping up the essay. So that's the, that's the flow of 1 Corinthians. But here's what's fascinating to me, that as Paul writes these five essays, they're all connected. They're not five separate essays. They build off of one another. As he, as he writes these essays, he goes, here's the problem with division. Here's the problem with sexual immorality. Here's the problem with the food and the gathering and resurrection. But then he does this, it's fascinating. He goes, but let me tell you what the gospel says. And this is where you begin to see the father heart of Paul come out for the people that he built community with for a year and a half and he loves deeply. And the whole letter, he goes, now this is what is happening, but can I just remind you? And he just has him look in the mirror. This is who you are. This is what Christ died for. You're a new creation. I love the father heart of Paul. If I can just talk about Paul's posture and heart as he writes this letter, before he gets into any of these issues at all, there's things that he says that you can just feel his love for these people that have run amok with different behaviors and issues and desi chasing different desires. He, he says this in, in chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse four. He says, I thank God for you. We need more pastors like this who go, I know we got our issues. We're a family, of course we have our issues. But I just want you to know, I thank God for you. I thank God for warts and all that we are a family. We are a community of people that have come together, united under the banner of Jesus. And it is worth celebrating. Before I talk to you about any of the issues that are running on the church, I just need you to know, I thank God for you. And then I love how he takes it a step further as he's writing this essay around division. Chapter four, he writes this. It's, it's, it's beautifully uh, said. He, he says in verse 15, he says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then he says, and so I urge you to be imitators of me. Paul goes, I am, I am imploring you for change like a father would his own child. How many parents know? that when it's your kid causing a scene, the level of patience and grace goes up. When it's somebody else's kid, we can totally judge and be like, man, someone's failing parenting all day long. But when it's our kid, when it's our kid messing up, the level of grace we have, we, there's no end. And so Paul goes, I just want you to know, I became a father. I love you so much that I can't let you stay here in the mess that you're creating, but I just want you to know, I am begging you as if you're my own son and daughter, we need to see lasting change.
I think it's important that we hear Paul's heart as he goes into some of these, these issues. Now, because you can see it plainly. Now, Paul, his heart for this is to go after their identity and not their behavior. This is what fascinates me. Before he even gets into writing about the issues, people who are currently practicing sexual immorality, they're getting drunk, they are worshiping idols, they are denying the resurrection, they are gossiping and they are backbiting. This is their current state, not something that they did last week, something they are doing right now. And Paul writes, and I love it, verse one, uh, chapter uh, one, verse eight. He says, you who are being sustained by Christ, you are guiltless. Those who are in Christ, they are guiltless. I love the fact that he holds up the mirror in chapter six, verse uh, nine. I, I love this verse. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11, and such were some of you, but you've been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit of God. Grace, everyone, amen. This is throughout his entire letter. I don't have time to go through all the places where he calls out identity and, and calls out the truth about grace, but he's continually, he goes, I'm not gonna ignore this. This kind of practice is unfitting for those who call themselves a part of the body of Christ. But what you need to know is that your identity does not rest on your willpower or your motivation or your work. It rests on the finished work of Jesus Christ. You have a new identity. This is the good news of the gospel. It's not about you white knuckling your way through life and saying, if I just try a little bit harder, maybe I can change. It's about the fact that you were given a new heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And on that heart has been written a new covenant and it is called grace. And the Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is still in you, continually testifying of your new identity. Now live into that. And so Paul, Paul's entire letter is a strategy about change. And he knows it's not about trying harder, but rather it's reinforcing. The whole idea around James Clear's book, the whole idea around 1 Corinthians is all about the who before the do. Paul is continually going, before we talk about what we ought to be doing, let's talk about who we are called to be. And there's plenty of evidence that shows that you are a new creation that has new cravings and new desires. In other words, Paul says, in order to change the cravings that we have, we have to recognize that our nature has been totally changed. Now, Tyler, you're supposed to talk about grace teams. What are you talking about? I wanna talk about, let's, if there's a do, I'd love for you to sign up for a grace team. If you're a member here at Northlands Church, bring your strength. Tom did a great job last week talking about what does it mean to bring your strength? So I don't wanna belabor that point. I want you to sign up for a grace team. If you're one of those cool kids sitting in the back and you're like, maybe they won't notice if I don't sign up. I promise you, we got planning center. We notice. <laughs> and it's, we're not gonna berate you, but we'll judge you silently. Yeah, no, 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 no. Bring your strength. That's what I wanna do. But I just, I just felt today, I felt like the Lord was saying, hey, Tyler, before we talk about all the things that we wanna do in 2022, that we wanna, we wanna sign up for a grace team, we wanna join a community group that we'll talk about in just a couple weeks. Before we talk about the do, I just felt like the Lord was saying, tell them who I've made them to be. Would you marvel at the reality of what does it mean to be the church? And so, so that's where I, I want us to go today. And I, I, just like we asked the question, if we, wanna, if we wanna read more in the new year, well, we're gonna ask the question, what would an avid reader do? I, I wanna ask the question, what would a great member of the body do? 
you're not called to be an average member of the body. First Corinthians chapter 12, it says, for those that seem dispensable. Sometimes we go, that person is so different from me. Like they're, they're like a small minor part of the body. And it says, if you, if it seems to you or you think not because it's true, but if it seems to you, like somebody is dispensable, I just want you to know they are indispensable. Those who seem like weaker members of body, I just want you to know they should be given even more honor. And so there's no average people in the body. So the assumption is, is that we are all great members of the body of Christ. And we want to give our lives as living stones to the work that Jesus is doing. And so I wanna ask the question, what would a great member of the body do? And there's three things that I see throughout Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians that he just continues to hit again and again and again and again. He talks about unity, he talks about generosity, and he talks about love. And so I wanna talk about these principles. Well, I wanna, I wanna talk about what does it mean to be unshakable in unity? What does it mean to be generous in the gifts that you have, whether it's your finances, your resources, your service, your time, your energy, whatever it may be, to be generous in the gifts and to be lavish in love for one another. As Paul holds up the mirror of grace, he continually reminds them, don't you know that we've been brought together by Christ himself? We are to be unified, unshakable in this unity. Don't you know that you have something to bring that matters? Be generous with the gift that you have. Don't you know that we are not doing love? No, God is love. Therefore, we are made in his image and we are love as well. People will know us by the things that we do, sure, but rather how we do those things in love. And so I wanna just take this first one. This, this first one for me is, is precious because I think it's so uh, relatable to where we've been over the last two years. I wanna talk about what does it mean to be unshakable in unity? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says this, fascinating. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, you read that verse and you think to yourself, okay, so Paul is saying that we all need to agree, we all need to have the same opinion, we need to have the same judgment on all the issues of life. And that is not what Paul is saying. Because if you read the, the problem that he writes about in this chapter one to four, as he's writing about divisions, the essay around division, as you read about the problem, you realize not only does he not fight about disagreements, he actually encourages disagreement in having your own personal preferences. So I'll tell you what I mean. So this is the issue at hand. Uh, the church is literally being divided and factioned off because some are saying, well, I'm a disciple of Paul. No, I'm a disciple of Cephas or Peter, the one who walked with Jesus. No, I'm a disciple of Apollos. And they're literally going, well, I think it was like a Jewish culture thing where they go, I'm gonna, they're gonna be my rabbi, so I'm gonna ignore all the other rabbis. And if you don't follow Paul, you don't know what you're doing. Paul planted this church. So if you're not following Paul and you're following Apollos, we can't be together. So they're dividing over the disagreement about who should be the leader and who should they be following. And, and so, so, so Paul hears about this and he, and he says in chapter three, he goes, are you really gonna divide over who you prefer as a leader? How, how human of you? That's how the world thinks. He goes, but we've been made in the spirit of God. We don't give in to the flesh and have preferences. And this is why I know he's not talking about agreement of our opinions or our preferences and why you have preferences. He literally encourages it. He says, he says I, I planted the church, but Apollos, he, he did the faithful work of watering it. But at the end of the day, we're just servants. At the end of the day, God's the one who brings forth the fruit. Who is Apollos? Who is Paul? If there was somebody who could have a preference to, to point to a preference, Paul would go, I planted this church. I'm the founding pastor. This is my church. Let me tell you your preferences. Paul doesn't do that. He actually encourages it. He says, have your preferences. 
I'm not here writing to you because the church is disagreeing. I'm writing to you because the church is dividing. Disagreements are not a case that shows that we failed in unity. Division is the case that we failed in unity. Corinthians chapter 12, it says that we all have a variety of gifts, a variety of services, a variety of activity, but we all serve the same spirit, the same God, the same Lord. We are called, God, Jesus, when he said, I am building my ecclesia, in his mind, there was a diversity in this mix. How can God encourage diversity, but then disagree about disagreements? I don't know if you know this, but diversity by its very nature, does it not welcome and invite conflict? Y'all are acting so spiritual. Did you not go to Thanksgiving this year? No? We are all one family called in from different parts of the state in a COVID year with some politics sprinkled in and we all come around the table. We're like, so what's new with everybody? Just throwing grenades, just like being like, so did anybody get the vax and just throw it out there? Just like, boom. If you're wondering what part I play in Thanksgiving, that's it. And by God's sovereignty, that's when I got COVID. So I actually missed Thanksgiving this year. So to the family, you're welcome. This is God's grace on your life. I was gonna throw some grenades. It's gonna be diversity. I lost you. I just really back in. Diversity by its nature invites and provokes disagreement and conflict. So the work that God is doing is building up a diverse body, which means there will be disagreements among us. So the question is then, okay, then what do we divide over? Because Paul does say in this letter, throughout the letter, as I, then there might be more areas of division. I just saw two main themes that I saw in the letter. Here's the two main themes where Paul goes, hey, we need to be clear. There are some matters that we divide over because there are some matters where you go, oh, if you believe that, you're not in the faith. We're not brothers. This isn't the church. You're actually outside of the body. So what are the things that we divide over? The two main things that I see um, are this, that if we remove Christ from the center, and what I mean by that, a denying of the Trinity, a denying of the inerrancy of scripture, a denying of, of the person of the Holy Spirit, anything that removes Christ from the center of this thing that he is building as the church, those things we must divide over. And then this is the one that's, that's in, intense, eternal matters. Eternal matters we divide over. If I could ask this, how do you know if you're dealing with a disagreement over eternal matters? If I ask the question, will we be talking about this in heaven? That's an eternal matter. So, so I see in the scriptures, every Trump, uh, tribe, tongue, and nation will one day worship around the throne of God. Diversity, different people groups from around the world gathered together. So a matter like racism is a dividing matter because there is, no, there is no room for racism in the body of Christ. Uh, it says we were knit together in our mother's womb, that you and I, we were made in the image of God. So therefore abortion is not a political issue. Abortion is a matter of image bearers and therefore it matters in eternity, it matters to us here now. Things like sexual immorality, Paul, Jesus, throughout the scriptures, they, they make it very plain throughout the scriptures, uh, sexuality, pure sexuality is between one man and one woman and they must be in covenant together. Not just a man and a woman, they must be in covenant together. Paul writes about this in Ephesians five and he says, this mystery of a covenant between a man and a woman, this thing called marriage, he goes, but I'm not really talking about marriage, I'm talking about Jesus and the church. 
So in other words, if we have a distorted view of sexuality here on earth, we will have a distorted view of Jesus and the bride. It matters now. So if it's something we're talking about in heaven, these are the things that we would divide over. But any other matter that falls out of those categories, we stick together no matter what. So, so here's, here's the problem. Uh, if you read this letter, you will easily go, oh, he's not talking about me. These are people who are sleeping around. These are people who are getting drunk. These are people who are gossiping. These are people who are worshiping idols. Uh, that's clearly like, they're, they're crazy. These are the crazy people Paul's trying to fix. And, and so I don't see myself there. So I, I, wanna, I wanna say this, and this is me going, I felt this burden as well. I don't wanna poke at a wound to be provocative. I just wanna make it real for us to go, oh, this matters to us as well. We went through some really hard years together and still facing some of it. But when it comes to matters of masks, vax, COVID, the Bible says we should all have our opinions and we will disagree about these things. And yet they are not matters that we would divide over. Disagreement is not a sign of failed unity, division is. There's this, the height of unity can be uniformity. We have total agreement on something. The height, the, 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 the brilliance of unity is when we're all in the same mind, we think the same, we have the great, that, that's, a, that's a wonderful feeling. That's, there's a high in that. But the most powerful acts of unity, those don't come when you're in total uh, agreement, they come when you're in disagreement. I, I, this is, out of 11 years of marriage, one of the most powerful moments that I had with my wife was when we were in a heated argument and disagreement and we just could not, we could not resolve it. We both had our beliefs on it and we we're going hours and hours talking about this issue. And, and Nicole's personality, she, she's a, such a strategic thinker that if she can back away from the problem for a time and think through it, she can come back with a number of solutions. So in our argument, she's going, hey, I need space. I need to walk away from this. Now I'm the opposite of that. I'm a fixer and I need to fix it right now. And so I go, I started quoting, I just start Jesus juking her and being like, don't let the sun go down on your anger and all, you know, <laughs> just quoting the Bible. And she's like, I'll quote the Bible. And so eventually we, we, find, we find resolve and we, find, we, we, we figure it out. And I don't know if you do this, but after we have a fight, we kind of just, we kind of review it and go, what was, what was the problem really? What were we dealing with? And she said, you know, Tyler, when we get into an argument, I, I start losing focus and I get more frustrated. I'm more prone to anger and saying something that I don't wanna say because I just need time and space to breathe, think about it and process. And she said, but why do you keep, like we're hours in and you just will not allow us to move from the table. And, I, and, it, and it just showed that the area in my own heart that I needed healing. I said, I said, babe, I feel like if we create a habit that we leave when we're in disagreement, it'll create a wedge. And eventually one day you'll get up, walk away from the table and you won't come back. I felt like disagreement was a sign that we were losing our unity. And our most powerful moment in my marriage, she comes to me, she looks at me, she goes, Tyler, not once in 11 years have we had a heated disagreement where I've looked at the door and said, you know what, Nicole, you need to leave and just never come back. And so then she got close to me and she goes, looks me in the eye and she goes, I need you to know this. I'm not leaving. That's unshakable unity. I just wanna commend you, Northlands Church. We are in this room because, not because we had complete agreement over the last two years, but when it was hard, when it was difficult, when it would have been easier to leave rather than to stay, you, you, you stayed. 
you looked us in the eye and you said, I don't know if I agree with that. And, and many, I have friends here, I go, man, I just vehemently disagree with where you're arriving at this issue of masks or vax or COVID at large. And we looked each other eyes and we said, but you know what, you're my brother and I'm not leaving. That's unshakable unity. And Northland's Church, you did that exceptionally well in 2020 and 2021, it's worth it. <laughs> Your brain is looking for evidence, remember, to reinforce that you are called to unity. And so you can look at 2020 and 2021. It's amazing to me that the world will use disagreements as the evidence of why they should divide. But if we can rewire our brain and say, we're called to an unshakable unity, every disagreement that you have this last year or this year is now evidence to say, this is why we're called together because I need your diversity. I need your different opinion. I gotta move on, I, gotta, I, gotta, I don't have enough time. Second thing. We're called to, gener to be generous in our gifts. A lot of people ask at, uh, when they're figuring out Northlands and coming to the community, they ask questions around what we believe about giving and generosity. And they'll, they'll ask, they'll go, hey, do you believe in tithing? And we go, oh, no, no, no. Uh, at Northlands, we see that's an old covenant model. We're not against tithing. If you wanna give 10%, that's totally fine. But we don't wanna go after the do. We're not after an amount. We're not after a percentage. Rather, we are here to equip the body for works of ministry. We're not going after an amount or your wallet. We are going after your heart. We aren't after, we're after a who, not a do. We want to gather people who have a heart that is burning for an opportunity around generosity. I love what James 1 chapter, uh, verse five says. It says about God and his nature, he gives generously to all without finding fault. You say, Tyler, what, what kind of thing are you trying to do about generosity with our gifts and our service and our time? I want us to have a craving in our heart to give generously to all without finding fault. That's what we're doing here. I had a friend of mine who, he told me this practice that he was doing and I loved it, I ripped it off from him. And he said, I took that verse from James and it just struck me. And so I said, how do I apply this practically in my life? And so he, him and his wife got together and they have an eating out budget. And that part of their eating out budget, they already assume a tip to be required. They have a percentage and they go, that's our tip. Wherever they go, no matter if it's fast food or well dining, they go, we're gonna give that percentage. And so when they walk into the restaurant, it doesn't matter the service that they got, doesn't matter if they were brought the wrong meal, doesn't matter if it was cold when it came, doesn't matter if the service was garbage, because they go, I wanna give generously to all without finding fault. My generosity is not about what people do for me and how I am, to, uh, how I am served, but rather it's about who I am called to be. And so Northland's Church, I just want to brag on you for a minute if I have the time to do so. I don't, but I'm still gonna take it anyway. Can you give me five minutes? Who will give me five minutes? All right, five, 10, 15, 20, 25. Boom, got that old pastor joke. Here we go. I got it more time. We marveled, we marveled at the identity. If I could just hold up a mirror, this is who you are. You are the most generous people that I know because our benevolence fund, our food pantry, our giving to missions, our giving to this house, we broke a record in this last year for the number of giving. Every time we gave out to families in need, you continue to give back. Why? Because generosity is not something you do. It is who you are. Just as Paul commends the Corinthians, I have to say, this is a trademark. This is a hallmark of who you are, Northland Church. Well done. Number three, we're called to be lavish in our love. God does not do love. God is love. And we are made in his image. And because of Christ, we have the capacity to love like this. And so we act not in love as something that we do in our actions, but in every action that we do, it is who we are. So in closing, if I can close quickly, I, I thought about, so again, the to-do. If I give you a to-do list, would you sign up to be a part of a grace team? If you're a member here, help a brother out, brother in Christ. 
But rather than giving you a to-do list as we close, I wanted to give you a to-who list. A to-who list for 2022. Would you consider what it means to embrace this kind of identity? Northlands Church, you and I, we are called to be unifiers in this body. So this year you say, Tyler, what do you want us to do with that? I know that our unity will be tested with many opinions and disagreements in this year. Why? Because we are a diverse group. And every time there's a disagreement, it's a sign that we are doing this thing right because we are a diverse body. And so I wanna ask you, the moment you find a disagreement, whether it's among the congregation or with one of our leaders, would you do this? We have to collect evidence, evidence that proves that that is who we are. When you say, how do I know that I'm a unifier? This year, when a disagreement comes up, would you stay when it would be easier to go? And would you file that away and say, let me tell you how I know I'm a unifier because there's four or five disagreements here and it would have been easier for me to walk away and go to another group, another team, another church where they all agree with my beliefs, they all agree with my doctrine, they all agree with my opinion. It would be much easier to do that. But unity is not uniformity and the body of Christ is very diverse. Would you stay when it would be far easier for you to go? Number two, my favorite, I think of the three, be a spiritual contributor. If there's one thing that I absolutely wanna kill in our Western church culture is this spiritual consumerism that we are seeing, where we've, we've whittled down what church is as this kind of opinion-based, vote for the best program kind of thing where we come in and we just kind of observe and we go, oh, I wish that person wasn't the one leading worship. Oh, Tyler's preaching today and not Greg, oh. Oh, I give it a five and a half. Joke's on you, I was going for a B minus anyway. I don't even need an A. No. That's a sign of spiritual consumerism. That what you partake in here is about your needs and, and being met. But, but church is not something that we go to. We are the church. We're spiritual contributors. The church doesn't exist for me. We are the church and we exist for the world. And so when I come around you, I'm not asking what's to my advantage. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24. Don't look for what's to your advantage or for your good. Look to your neighbor's advantage and your neighbor's good. Let us come in, not just trusting the Lord, Lord, would you speak to me about my life? But Lord, how can you use me to speak into the life of one of my brothers and sisters? We're called to be spiritual uh, contributors. So to be a unifier, a spiritual contributor, and then finally, to be a servant. You cannot get away from the life of Jesus and the things that he said, the way that he lived, the things that he taught and go, I wonder if service mattered to him. He said, if you wanna be great in my kingdom, take up the role of a servant. Pick up a servant's towel, as we say here at Northlands. Love is our primary mode of operation here. It is an overflow of who we are, not just something that we do. And so I, I said this a couple weeks ago, but I think it's a great question. And if you wanna know, how do I know that I'm obeying the will of God for my life? If you can answer this question, what does love require of me? Answer that question and then do that. So be a unifier, stay when it'd be easier to go. Be generous with your gift. A question to ask, if somebody had my gifts and they were a generous person, what would they do with those gifts? as you look at your, your finances, your talents, your skills, your ability, your life, you go, if somebody had these gifts that I have and they were generous, what would they do with it? 
and then do that. Say, Tyler, you want me, so you want me to serve on a team? Sure. You want me to serve on two teams? Sure. Serve one month, three months, or three times a month, what do you want me to do? Answer the question. Here's what I know, you are some of the most generous people that I have ever come in contact with, and it is an absolute honor to be called the church with you. And let us serve one another greatly as our King and our Lord has served us so well. Northland's church, we're not some ordinary gathering. We are the church and we are called to be the church. So would you consider today how you are going to contribute in love, in generosity, in power and service for the sake of the people that are sitting around you? And together, let us be about the mission and the building that Jesus is architecting, the church. Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you for this work that you are doing among us, that you have rallied us together, that you are bringing us together like living stones. And this is a work that you have begun and this is a work that only you can finish. Would you continue to teach us? Would you continue to give us a heart that burns of devotion for you and for one another? Would you lead us into good works by continually reminding us of the identity that you have given us in Christ? If you are here today and with our heads bowed, if you're here today and you are not a Jesus follower, I just want you to know that there is a new identity on the table for you. The brokenness and the hurt that you've experienced in this life, I promise you there is a healer who wants nothing more than to continue to pick up the broken pieces of our lives and make us whole. And so if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you just right where you're sitting, would you consider that today to say yes to Jesus? Say, Jesus, I wanna be a part of this thing that you are building. And if you said yes to Jesus, I'd love to meet you out in the lobby with some of our other leaders and we'd love to just give you some, some gifts and some materials to help you as you've begun your journey of a new life as a new creation today. But we wanna welcome you into the kingdom. We wanna celebrate with you. So if you would join us in the lobby. In Jesus' name.